Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave? Doing pretty good, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, first of all, apologies to the listeners. We're a day late this week, and it is totally my fault. I had uh, apparently the atmosphere in Ohio decided that I wasn't worthy of breathing this weekend and uh, had a pretty miserable time with allergies over the weekend and didn't sound very good or if you can imagine how I normally sound which isn't that great for a podcast host make that much much worse and that's what it would have sounded like if we recorded yesterday (laughs) so apologies and that's why we're late but anyway we're here today um what's going on with you Dave uh yeah I went further in my unity book um, I wrapped up the rest of chapter eight, which finished off the first game. Um, and then started into the first person shooter section, starts with chapter nine, did all of that. And then about a third of chapter 10 before I got stuck. Um, so yeah, started with building a little first person shooter game with some robots running around and. And different weapons, a pistol, shotgun, assault rifle, swapping between those. Different animations for each gun, different um, ammo quantities for each gun. Uh, Pretty neat stuff. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I really like the artwork for the the robots in that game. The second one you're working on now. Yeah. I just thought they were kind of cool looking. So what have you learned? Um, I have learned that I'm very confused. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So I got stuck in chapter 10 when uh, I was trying to animate. The the robots are moving around a little like universal ball transportation system thing. They just all float on a little ball and trying to animate that so that the ball moves when the robot moves. And... I got into this spot and I basically got stuck with the exact same thing the first time playing with Unity's animation system. I really kind of like the animator, the finite state elements of that I find really cool and I can kind of get how it works and I see how it all fits together. And then I start playing with animation and that interface just drives me nuts. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I was missing the record button because I got to tell it to record before it'll actually pay attention to anything that I'm typing in. But then once I start recording, I have to be on the right. Basically, I can't select a keyframe by clicking on the keyframe. I select a keyframe to edit that point in the animation by clicking in the timeline equivalent to that point. And I can't figure out why. Yeah. Like it doesn't make, it doesn't seem to do anything clicking on the keyframes that have been defined. Little diamond shapes. Can you drag them around? Yes. But even dragging around, then there's no, there's no reason for selection. Hmm. Like clicking on one highlights it. That is kind of a weird interface. Like imagine doing data entry in an Excel sheet 
you select the row you want and then select the column header and then just start typing. Like, no, I, I just want to click into the cell. Yes. Let me click at this spot and go. Um, particularly since if you really dig into it, there's ways to select different, like if you're looking at the, the position or rotation portion of the transform of the object, you can select individual, like just the X component. Mm-hmm. And it will light up that blue diamond and then the blue diamond for the transform and then the or the blue diamond for rotation and the blue diamond for the transform. But not the other two. They will not light up blue. But you can't seem to do anything with that. <laughs> so I'm either missing knowledge or something is very, very wrong with that interface. And the latter is way more likely than... Or the former is way more la- likely... It's way more likely that I'm missing the thing that that does. Like, you got to be a pro to need that or something. Because, you know, I am very likely just very confused there. Yeah. And feeling really confused. Like, spending 10 minutes clicking on the little thing and then clicking. And so, like, I had the timeline portion right. Like, I click on the timeline and actually get that. The problem was I didn't have the record button. So, nothing that I was doing made any sense whatsoever or had no impact. Um, and so that was just a little roundabout. I seem to recall doing almost the exact same thing when we were doing animation in the first section of the book. So, I don't know. Just gotta learn it. Whenever I get stuck with something in an interface like that, I find the best thing to do, at least working alone, is to find a video of somebody doing whatever that process is so just Mm. youtube or whatever and just even if it has nothing to do with what i'm working on you know i'm trying to animate a robot movement and they're trying to animate a horse wagging its tail it doesn't really matter if i can just see them using the animation workflow um that's usually enough to get me unstuck but not always but yeah there are certain things in the book in this book and in other books that just a picture is worth more than words and a video is worth more than the book for certain concepts Mm -hmm. no that's a really solid idea i should have done that i've done that for a couple of things i just haven't been doing that with unity yet and that's kind of silly because i know that there's tons of good video content out there yeah, there's a particularly there's a channel called Brackies. I think it's I'm pronouncing it right. But uh this guy just has about 6 years of Unity experience and makes really good videos. Some short ones, some long ones and just covers a ton of different topics and he's just constantly putting stuff out. So you might want to check him out. But there's lots of others as well. I will do that. So you're not stuck now, or are you? I am now not stuck. I was stuck right up until the point when we started our call. Nice. And it was the combination of the two things. One, hit the record button. Two, click the timeline, not the keyframe. And those two things in combination work. Cool. So, yeah. Um... There's also a couple of spots. Oh, go ahead. 
So what was your big takeaway, if any, from the first section, the first eight chapters? My big takeaway? Um, I mean, mine was it, don't animate walls. <laughs> I guess I, I was trying to find something big as a big takeaway, but yeah, sure. Don't. Don't animate the heights of walls. Um, a lot of the... There's a lot of functionality you can put into an app with a minimal quantity of code. Mm-hmm. You know, 50 lines of code can get you a lot going on in a game. Um, just for purposes of prototyping and such like that. But in that one, and then also as a transition into this next section, I've got a real hard time figuring out how to organize a project. Not from the file management side, because the folders are fine for that. Um, But from the side of like kind of abstraction layers... Mm-hmm. Um. So, like, my general desire is to try and set up a good, clean structure, something that will be kind of future expandable sort of thing. And I've got a lot of experience with system design. So I'm like, I know this value is this now, but I also know I'm going to want to change that. Like, at some point in the future, that's going to change. But there will be spots where in the game they're going through and kind of hard coding elements mm-hmm. or creating connections between elements that feels like hard coding. But I think it just means that I don't yet understand really how Unity thinks about that. Like putting guns into this game ended up with a gun a gun equipper an ammo class and then a class a subclass of gun for each specific type of gun Mm -hmm. and then sometimes the ammo would be tied to the gun but sometimes the gun is kind of tied to the ammo and and like the cross connections between these classes it's relatively easy to just go oh yeah just make a you know a um we do like, like the game ui class and then tie this thing to that. And then, boom, now they know about each other. And from database design background, making random connections between subsystems is a bad idea. Yeah. So I guess, quick thought, the book you're currently working on is is not full of good examples for that type of abstraction. There's another right. book that I started and finished recently it's much shorter it's eight chapters um you make four games or three games in kind of a ai playing field uh it's called unity 5.x by example and i think it was one of the ones we got in the humble bundle i read it in that safari books online account that i mentioned um but the writers of this book it's a much more dry book but it's much more technical and 
they're they're not dogmatic about you should do things this way, but they have a really clean way of just organizing their code and classing and subclassing things, particularly when it gets to the AI stuff. I thought it was just they didn't really say anything about it, other than you know this is how we're doing it. Um, but everything right. made a lot more sense to me from an abstraction level. So you may want to take a look at that book at some point. But on the other hand, I guess on the other side of that, um, I'm reading another book called Artificial Intelligence for Games. And there was a section this morning that I read that they make a really good case. Now, this is applicable to writing code for artificial intelligence, not necessarily the game as a whole. But they made a really strong case for basically tightly couple as much as possible. Don't worry about the abstraction stuff. The, that the abstraction stuff can actually significantly slow down your AI behavior, especially if you've got, you know, a level like you're making with dozens or hundreds of robots, those need to be incredibly fast. So the less they have to think, the less they have to search. And this whole book is, you know, kind of drawing on two themes of an AI can have, you know, different measures of two parts, searching or knowledge. The more knowledge you give it, the less searching it has to do. The more searching it has to do, the slower it is, but the less knowledge it needs. This is one of those situations where the more knowledge you can give it up front, the faster it can go, even though your code may be more tightly coupled to certain things. Um, so they even they provide a ton of pseudocode in the book, and they provide all of the code examples for the book in a GitHub repo with C++, and they even show, like, these are abstracted layers you should unabstract this when you implement it <laughs> like you shouldn't actually do it like this redo it and optimize <laughs> it for your game like it's, it's interesting to read stuff like that when i'm used to reading the exact opposite in every other technology but yeah. Yeah. i would love to well, hear so what more experienced developers think about those concepts absolutely um in my business application for my day job, we I spent a lot of effort building a system where I could basically externalize large quantities of business logic outside the system. So chunks of the interface are actually basically loaded from text files at runtime, making it so that I don't have to dig into a really complicated GUI design interface to make these particular things load in a particular way. Um, and so I've, I've got a desire to like, no, 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 I, I don't need to hard code this stuff. I can just go ahead and, and set this aside and load it from someplace else or set it up at runtime. But it also really hurts that kind of tweak on the fly model that Unity has, which is part of its advantage. <laughs> Like I'm, I'm, I don't want to apply, um, I, I don't want to do the, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of setup. I want to do it the unity way, but there are elements of things that I had always thought of as, um, kind of truisms for development mm -hmm. as far as desiring reasonable levels of abstraction and, layering the code in that way so that you could swap out lower components without a problem. And I'm just, I still don't know yet how all that fits in, in a unity model. And now you're suggesting that this isn't necessarily the book for that. 
Yeah, another resource you may want to look at is Unity actually has several sample projects that they've made internally and put on the asset store. Um, one of them is actually a, a, a complete project that they shipped. It's in the Google Play Store, I think maybe in the iOS Store as well. It's just a like an endless runner with a cat jumping over boxes or something. Um, but they actually made it to show off their in-app purchase and like microcurrency or whatever it was. Uh, service and their any of the money they generate from it they're donating to someone but they they publish the game and then they put the entire code base on github that you can download and take a look at and see how they built it that may be one of those ones because they're kind of drawing such attention to it it may be worth looking at that one to see how do they structure the code across the game and did they optimize the ai code or did they use abstraction or combination things like that Cool. And then I, I, I'll have to dig into that. But then I stumbled across something else that further just suggested that I don't, I don't know enough yet to even know what all the tools are that are available. And there was something that they did in the first section of the first person shooter where they set up a, um, it was a, a tracker for how much ammo you start with for each weapon. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 50 rounds of assault rifle ammo, 20 rounds of pistol ammo, 10 shotgun rounds. And they're just laid out as three separate serialized fields in the inspector. But at runtime, the first thing that the app does is take those values and shove them into a dictionary so that it can have faster key-based access so those three properties so that if you added 10 more, all of the rest of the code wouldn't need to update. Mm. And so what was kind of neat about that was I didn't want to necessarily have my design for the app or the design for my code, my internal APIs to be driven by how I wanted the inspector interface to look for me while I'm modifying it. And so that was a neat example to see, like, just because I represent it this way in the inspector doesn't, in the end, have any impact on how the code looks at it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good and example. that was kind of neat. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's really my my code and, and Unity Direct stuff. Um, so what are you doing with code, Joe? With code? Yeah. Well, I am uh, pretty far down the rabbit hole in terms of looking into AI stuff. I think I, I spent a couple hours last week going through that book I just mentioned, uh, Unity 5.x by example. And then I think I may have spent two or three hours on my app. And then the rest of the time, in a combination of doing some consulting work, for my the other part of my business and reading too many books <laughs> i keep getting a chapter or two in a book coming across a concept that becomes cause for another book and uh just keep adding <laughs> books onto the stack it's pretty ridiculous at this it's, point. it's fractal book knowledge it's pretty close yeah you know i started with the unity ai cookbooks 
book a couple weeks ago, realized pretty quickly that I don't understand the concepts to understand the recipes. So I started a UI game programming book that was pretty good. Went through most of that already. Learned some core concepts. Um, was able to implement a few things in my game or at least start finding the right tools. But still didn't really feel like I know how to interpret the documentation as well as I want. So I started reading a book called Artificial Intelligence for Games, which is what I was just talking about. Um, it is not geared towards any particular environment. And uh, it's just a really, really good book so far. And then uh, pretty early in that, maybe third or fourth chapter, I came across some math that didn't really make a lot of sense to me. So I found a book called 3D math primer for graphics and game development and have been brushing up on some of that and trying to dust off whatever part of my brain forgot all the math that I allegedly learned in school. Like I know some of it's in there somewhere, but it's been 20 years at this point. So yeah, I'm uh, basically just Spending a lot of time reading, trying to understand some of these bigger concepts and taking a lot of notes and watching some videos and keep meaning to get back into actually developing my game, but I keep finding more questions. And uh, yeah, this happens to me. Eventually I'll get sick of it and decide I need to do something practical, but this happens to me a couple times a year. It's not immediately productive, but it can be fruitful in the long term. Sure. It's short-term producti productivity for long-term knowledge. And hopefully, that brings long-term productivity. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. I mean, that's that's paid off in many other fields that I've studied, so I don't see why it wouldn't here. But, you know, I've learned a little bit about finite state machines, um, both from the books and from a discussion I had with you. I'm learning a little bit about behavior trees and... Uh, some pathfinding stuff, particularly the A-star approach to pathfinding, and then learning more about Unity's navigation stuff. And then one of the reasons I started this journey into more and more AI stuff is because I was running into weird limitations with what I was finding in Unity. Um, so let's give an example. Say I've got an AI character, a game character that I'm controlling, and an AI, and I want the AI to chase the character. And we're on a nice blank canvas. We've got a, a plane as big as it needs to be, and we've got some cubes dotting the canvas that are in the way. I want the AI to follow the character. And if the character goes behind a cube, the AI should figure out how to go around the cube and continue looking for it if it makes sense under that context. If it completely loses sight or doesn't know what happened to it, it should give up and go away. I want it to avoid that cube, not run into it Grand Theft Auto style and jog in place like an idiot. Um, <laughs> not a fan of that. No matter how amusing it is. Yeah, that's fun for a while. But I also, those, th those now you can do that a little bit with Unity's nav mesh um, obstacles, but I haven't figured out a way to make those obstacles also part of the nav mesh. So there are situations 
where the target character may be on top of that cube. And in those situations, I want the AI to climb up that thing onto that second level. And I'm not really sure how I can have something be both avoided in the navigation mesh and <laughs> climbable or interactable. I'm not sure if that's multiple meshes. I'm just not sure how to handle something like that. But, you know, I, I'm, when I ran into this problem, I started looking for ways to take care of AI steering in three dimensions versus two. But one of the things I came across in the Artificial Intelligence for Games book this morning was that almost all AI in all games, at least that have gravity, are done in 2D or 2.5D, where there may be some perception of of height, but mostly you're still moving around on a plane and then you're dealing with basically triggers, um, like collider triggers to trigger a animation event to do the climbing or some other kind of less AI, more immediate technique to just move that AI character from the ground to the surface you need to climb on. So just reading that kind of made me stop and think like thinking back to what I did with Polarith, maybe I was on the right track with something like that. Um, I need to revisit that and see if I can find examples of just that kind of behavior. Now this all becomes totally moot in an out outdoor environment when you can have the, the nav mesh kind of conform to landscape and there's ups and downs in hills and mountains and stuff like that. It's, it's just not a problem. But when we're dealing with much more blocky type objects like indoor furniture or cubes and stuff like that, that's where I kind of like the the object that needs to be avoided and or climbed on is separate from the main object that the navigation mesh is existing on, which would be the floor in this case. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit confusing and... You know, typical Joe style. I went way down the rabbit hole in search of. <laughs> so I may be back with it in a couple of months. Who knows how long it'll take? No, it won't. It won't take that long. Hopefully, I won't find any more books to read before I can finish the three that I'm on. But I have bad news for you, Joe. I know there are a lot of books out there on these topics. And I have access to like 2,500 of them for free or for 40 bucks a month, but all in one place. And it's not a good, it's not a good thing. <laughs> I even think I have a couple of physical books on my bookshelf about game AI. No, you don't. Oh, of course not. No. No chance. No. Not that you can mention to me. Well, you know, if I loaned you these books, they'd come back with like highlighter marks and stuff written in the margins. No, they wouldn't come back. <laughs> I suppose there's that. Yeah. So anyway, the the three books that I'm reading, um, there is Unity AI Game Programming, which I'm just kind of picking through at this point. I've done most of the good stuff, I think. It's, it's one of those... PAX publishing books and it's it's okay um it has some really good knowledge in it but the the tutorial type examples aren't very good because they're just kind of they don't really give you any step by step it's like okay we're gonna implement this algorithm now here's what it looks like anyway here's the next one like wait a second what objects are we 
using here? Like, you didn't even say make a new scene. What are you talking about? <laughs> so yeah, a lot of figuring out as you go along with that one. Um, the Artificial Intelligence for Games book is really, really good. I'm really enjoying that. They do a brief history on artificial intelligence in general and the differences between AI and games versus other industries and just how in gaming you really have to play fast and loose with a lot of things to get the kind of performance that we need, especially on large-scale games. We think about lots of AIs. And I guess one of the biggest takeaways at least the early chapters of the book that I'm in, one of the biggest takeaways is you don't have to be, your AIs don't have to be super complex, abstract entities. They should be simple as possible and you should fake as much as possible. So if you can, you know, if you've got a patrolling guard that you're trying to make look more realistic, but you're, you know, your player is only going to come across that guard for 30 seconds or a minute. Don't think of everything the guard might do in its day. Just give it a couple of animations, <laughs> make it scratch its nose, check its cell phone, flip a light switch, whatever it is to make it feel realistic for those couple of seconds. Um, and kind of just faking it with animations and you know more basic behaviors rather than try to make a super complicated AI. So that was kind of just a neat to read that approach, especially coming from you know two pretty big AI experts like, hey, uh, not everything needs to be super complicated. Fake it as much as possible. That's what most games do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with those. Uh, the other book is 3D Math Primer for Graphics and Game Development 2nd Edition, um, which is... I can't imagine any other point in my life where I would have wanted to read this book other than today. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. It's a, it's different, but just trying to brush up on some some basic concepts. There's been a lot of things in Unity, you know, where I've, I've kind of understood what we're doing, but I don't really understand what's happening under the scenes. Like why are why are we using this math to do this thing? So trying to learn some of those concepts. And then uh, as far as my game goes, the I guess the last thing I mentioned was. I had given up on Polarith because of the what I thought were the limitations involved. Um, but I found something called Behavior Designer, which is looks like it's used pretty widely in Unity development. Um, it's integrated with like 20 other editor plugins and extensions. There's a lot of support for it. And you can do a lot more with it than just steering and movement. You can actually plug in your AI stuff with your animations and some other stuff. Um, it's a complex tool and it's a whole nother window to manage. There's a lot I haven't figured out with it yet. So I've got some really, really basic stuff working with it, but what I have working with it is significantly inferior to the Polarith approach or even just the hard-coded pathfinding approach or the nav mesh approach that I had previously, which is kind of funny because I actually have three different versions of placeholder Paul running around the scene. So, you know, just three different colors. And it's kind of weird to see three different algorithms kind of compete against the same objective. And or I should say two different sets of algorithms and one 
really, really dumb one who always gets whatever he wants. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with the project. Um, there's a lot to a lot to figure out, and I need to climb out of the rabbit hole at some point and get back to work. I guess the other big update that I have is the astute listener will remember from the very beginning of the podcast that I mentioned I had given myself until the end of October to work on VR full-time and to try and ship a product. Obviously, I have not shipped a product, not even close, um, but the end of October is here and I am running out of time. So it's we're at the point where I have a business to run and need to go do some work to bring in money to keep, you know, existing on the earth. Um, so I've sent out some quotes for some consulting work this week, and uh, hopefully I'll hear back from that soon. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what I can do in the Unity space or the VR space as a freelancer or subcontractor. You know, it's kind of hard for me to bill myself as an expert by any means, but I'm wondering what's out there, what opportunities are out there as far as doing work for someone else. And I don't know yet. I haven't really looked. I know this is something that we talked about on our previous podcast of when we're learning something new, it's kind of a chicken and egg situation. A lot of what you can learn about a platform comes from having those consulting projects that you you can't choose to not finish because you have a contract in place. <laughs> like I, I you learned, have no choice but to implement this feature. Yeah. So like I learned more about PHP and JavaScript and Bootstrap this year than I have about Unity because I had a large chunk of money given to me and an objective and an imperative to actually ship something that had to go out by the end of the school year. And it did. And like when I have that design constraint or that physical constraint, yeah, I figured out everything I needed to do to make that happen. I haven't really had that in Unity because I'm just working on my own project. And those internal constraints are a little easier. They shouldn't be, but they are easier to push off and you know not ship things. So I'm wondering... From a professional standpoint, it's not really responsible to bill myself as a Unity expert or a VR expert, because um, I certainly am not. But I think I am at the point where I could do some subcontracting for, you know, another game studio locally or someone that I meet somewhere. So I don't know. We have a Cog meeting this weekend. I'm gonna see if I can talk to some people there. See if anybody needs an extra brain or code monkey. Definitely not a 3D. Yeah, some grunt work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I've, I've had tons of ideas, you know, in previous similar discussions. I have no assistance for you here. Like the only people I know in game development are people you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, would you like to hire me to make you a game, Dave? Um, not right now. <laughs> Didn't think so. It'd be kind maybe, of counterproductive. Maybe later. 
Yeah, that would actually be the worst possible thing for me working on game design would be outsourcing it. It's like, okay, no point in learning this anymore. Joe's going to do it for me. I'll just write you up an abstract every week for the podcast. So what Yeah, you- I mean, I've I've considered that model a couple of times and just saying, I'm going to go ahead and design it. Um figure out where I want it to go and what I want it to do and then put together a solid spec document and, you know, for whatever stage of the process we're at and outsource the development. Um, yeah, I've thought about doing that with FileMaker work. I don't know about outsourcing, but at least I'm at the point now where I had a meeting last week with a customer who needed some new work done and just a little discovery meeting, half an hour to get some details. And it was a really good meeting. And I had some really good notes. And I knew exactly what to do to get them a quote. And I'm thinking, as I'm going through this process, like, I'm really good at this part. Yeah. And I'm really good at the building part. It's just the building part I don't really like anymore. As far as making all the FileMaker stuff. And I'll, I'll do it because it's a great customer. But I wonder, I kind of look at my previous employers and realize, I wonder if they got to the same point where they were just kind of sick of writing scripts and making interfaces and that's why they started their companies. So I don't know. Sometimes I think I should just keep doing FileMaker work for a while and hire a junior developer or two. But I doubt that's going to happen. Yeah, I think the FileMaker model is probably different from most other things because I think most people get into FileMaker as users into developers. Yeah. And not like if you're coming top down, like, Oh, I want to build a service that provides this value to customers. If you're not already in the FileMaker world, you probably aren't going to go. I think FileMaker is the best choice for that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, yeah. having employees is awesome and simultaneously one of the worst things ever. <laughs> yeah. So take that into account. Um Yeah, that's I think it would be really funny seeing Joe with like four employees. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean funny bad. I mean it would my guess is you would bust your tail and figure out how to do that really, really well. Um, the problem is that it doesn't necessarily save you a huge amount of time. No, and it doesn't really fit with the kind of the lifestyle that I've carved out of. I may not make a ton of money doing what I'm doing, but I have complete autonomy. And you, yeah. don't, you don't get that with employees. Like it, yeah. if I wanted to shut my company down, shut my business down and move to the mountains and not talk to anybody for a year. I could do that tomorrow. Like there's just nothing stopping me from doing that. Aside from really good internet access in the mountains. (laughs) But uh, someday they're going to solve that. Yeah. We're going to have global fast internet access. It'll be cheap. Yeah. And then you'll be able to go anywhere. Global 5G. Whatever yeah. it's called. Five bucks a month. Go. 
hopefully. Yeah. So yeah, if uh, if you dear listeners are looking for a reasonably intelligent and inexperienced Unity developer, let me know. Be happy to have a conversation. This this episode of VR Hermits is sponsored by me, a desperate call for survival. <laughs> Well, the cool thing about hiring Joe in this context is that Joe isn't necessarily looking for you to provide him 40 hours of work a week for the next five years. Yeah, exactly. He has no illusions about that. So while we're on the topic of kind of finding work, um, I've been thinking a lot lately about the best ways for me my my goals with VR are to make products to release on my own, like in the Daydream Store, on Steam, in Samsung VR, on Oculus's mobile platform, whenever that ships, whatever it looks like. But I realize that the scope of the projects that I can release on my own are always going to be very, very small projects. I'm never going to be able to release, you know, really great games like the gallery or some of the stuff we've seen on the vive on my own at least not without years of working on a project um so i've been trying to think of ways to you know make revenue make a living off of vr and something that keeps coming back to me obviously is doing consulting work but doing projects for other people that same constraints involved i can't i can't bid on the million dollar projects because I'm not a million dollar team. Even if I get really, really good at this, unless I get to the point where I'm hiring people, I'm never gonna be working in that field. Just like there are entire classes of FileMaker projects that I immediately just hand off the leads to the company I used to work for, because they're just beyond the scope of what I can do on my own. Um, right. So I was trying to think of areas that aren't, and I keep coming back to WebVR. And particularly web VR and mobile VR and just all of those cardboard apps and websites that all of the businesses have an imperative to get because somebody decided they had to get them and they need to find a vendor to build them. And I'm thinking that sounds reasonable. And I'm wondering if I should start spending a lot more time building web VR stuff to really learn everything I can about that, you know, kind of streamline the process of starting a web VR project, creating the server, getting the hosting set up, getting the environment configured and uh, start building stuff um, in such a way that, you know, just like with a FileMaker database or a PHP app, I've kind of know how to start and get started. And, you know, a good 10% of every project is already done when I start. I'm wondering if I should start doing that now with WebVR and just really learning everything I can about WebVR. It's still the early days of WebVR, but I think it's going to be huge. I think a lot of people agree with that as more and more browsers support it. Um, and one of the one of the ways I thought about doing that is a webcomic. I mentioned this on Twitter a week or two ago, but I have always wanted to, to do some kind of webcomic, but I'm a terrible artist. I always have hilarious ideas that would be funny in a comic form, but I can't draw a straight line. 
I can actually do better 3D modeling than I can do drawing at this point, which is weird. <laughs> so, okay. So I'm wondering if I should start making, just to exercise my skills in WebVR, start making a little webcomic. Each one is a little you know, WebVR scene on the same site, not a different site for everyone. Um, and just tell basically dry puns in a very visual format in WebVR slash, you know, just the uh, using the 3D tools available. And the, the cool thing I like about that idea is obviously if you come across it when you're in VR, you can walk around the joke, things like that. Maybe there'll be things you can only see in that format. But the way that A-frame in particular fails back to 2D screens, it wouldn't be a problem to just share that link on Twitter and have tons of people visit it, even if they don't have anything, any VR headsets, they can still look at it on a phone or on a desktop browser and see it just fine. You just pan around with the mouse and keyboard or, or tap around on the screen. So yeah, what do you think about kind of that approach to you know, learning web VR or becoming a web VR consultant? <clears throat> Hmm. So, on one side, I'm not necessarily one of those people that thinks that web VR is going to become the future. But, to a certain degree, I don't think it matters. The trick is just whether there's work there to get. It's like, FileMaker is not necessarily going to ever take over the world. Yeah. But if you decided to, and you wanted to spend a little bit of time doing it, you could pretty much sell as much FileMaker work as you could do. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, FileMaker doesn't have to be huge. There just has to be enough work for the developers available that have, you know, a decent skill set. Um, so, targeting web VR, I don't think it necessarily matters how big the market is. It's just a question of whether that market is being well serviced. The tough part is do you know anybody who's currently looking for web VR stuff? No. But okay. I haven't really looked either. No. Um, and I don't think at this stage anybody, I don't think, I think very few people would be looking specifically for web VR. I think people would be looking for some kind of VR presence. Right. Um, it, these are not necessarily counter arguments. They're just things I'm considering. Mm -hmm. um, the big thing that I really like about it is... They were talking about kind of doing the smallest possible thing. Mm -hmm. It's like when you're getting started, do a thing, do it to completion, get the whole thing done, and then move on to the next thing. There's a lot of room here for becoming iteratively better at the process and the end product, and but without being beholden to previous mistakes. Mm-hmm. So you don't, if you really mess up the first one, like the, the joke is there, it works, it works visually, you can walk around in it, but portions of the VR look horrible. You don't have to take any of those mistakes into the next joke. Yeah. You can throw all of that away and just make the whole new joke in the new scene with the new thing and maybe a trigger or two that causes a bubble to pop up or, you know, an extra part of the joke or something like that. Or you, you know, look behind the desk and the cat farts. 
Okay, great. Um, but then you can take everything that you learned from that and apply that to the third joke. Now, hopefully the jokes will get better, <laughs> but I've heard some of your puns and I'm not going to hold out hope there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, but I think you... I'll definitely have a niche market. <laughs> I think there's a lot of room there for you to get better at doing VR stuff very quickly. If you do it that way, you yeah. also get much better at doing your 3D modeling, all your art stuff, any of the animation stuff, the animator integrations, things like that. All of that stuff that you can get way better at really, really quickly when you've got a defined end product in mind. Yeah. I mean, in general, I really like the idea. I think it'll also be something that would be relatively easy for you to do in bite-sized bits while you're knocking something else out. Yeah, exactly. Basically like, it's going to be hard to do your FileMaker consulting while trying to make a full VR game. I mean, from a learning capacity. Yeah. But all I need to do is this one joke. Let's do this one scene. That's something that you can squeeze in around other contract development. Mm-hmm. Of whatever variety. So, in general, I really like the idea. I mean, as a as a learning construct, and then potentially as a as another thing you could offer at a later point. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I can get good enough at it that people with real good jokes could contact me and, hey, will you make a, <laughs> a VR web comic for my good jokes? Maybe I will. That that quite possibly is the best case scenario, but yeah. <laughs> in the meantime, I'll stick with my. I don't even know what to call it. It's not dad jokes because I'm not a father, but may as well be with my sense of humor. So I have, I have one more unimportant topic, but I think it was fun. Um, it okay, is, what you got? It is a VR game I played this weekend on Daydream called Gravity Pull. And this is a very simple puzzle game. And I mean really simple, like pull the pull the cube onto the trigger to open the door types of puzzles. Okay. All, all the puzzles are fairly easy to figure out. Some of them require a little bit of maneuvering. But the thing that made it such a delight to play was the way that you move around in this game. To move forward, you jog in place. To move backwards, you look up and jog in place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so okay, I within the first nine minutes of playing this game, I ran into my office wall sixteen times. <laughs> <laughs> which, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious every single time, but the dog that I'm watching was not amused at all. And at some point, <laughs> she got really upset about it. So yeah, it's a, it's a ton of fun. I'm going to play it more when the dog goes away. Um, there is you know, a, an accessibility mode where you can turn off that form of locomotion and just use the trackpad, which is how I played a couple of levels. But it's way more fun to run into the walls. Um, 
you know, especially with the daydream, because I'm not worried about really damaging the daydream the same way that I would be with the Vive. So it's just like, you know, whatever, it's a hundred bucks. I'll get another one if I completely trash it. The phone's fine. It's all insulated. Yeah. But it's mainly just like how many times, I, just over and over and over again, just running right into the wall. Like, I know I'm standing in my office. I know I'm supposed to be running in place, but every time my brain just thinks, no, you're in this big room, run over there, and just smack over and over again. I wish I had video of it. I really do. <laughs> it's like when I introduced my father to VR on the Vive, I learned the incredibly useful information that if you fire a rocket at my father's head, he always dodges back into the left. <laughs> nice. Because as the critters were firing things at him, it was always the big, you know, the big smoke plume flame stream rocket fire. When that, when those things got fired at his head, he would always step back into the left until he was like huddled in the corner of the physical room trying to dodge these rockets. It was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a fun little game. I'll put a link in the show notes. And uh, I wish there was more of it. There's only like 16 levels so far. Um, each one, some of them are really short. They get a little bit harder towards the end. But it was a good little game. What about you? Any anything VR related? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm kind of working on a, a new thing. So the um, the Steam. Halloween sales going on right now. Oh, fun. So I picked up a copy of Arizona Sunshine. Okay. Um, considered one of the best of the zombie games on the Vive. Um, but that was just today. I haven't had a chance to play it yet. At least partially because this afternoon my deluxe audio strap for my Vive showed up. So I'll get a little bit of a headgear upgrade. Yeah, definitely. And then all of that is... With the intent that shortly the TP cast is supposed to be released in the U.S. At long last. And at long last. <clears throat> Which means that shortly I will have my deluxe audio strap and the TP cast. And so I'll just be able to pick up the headset, stick it on my head, tighten the little tightening knob, grab the two hand controllers, and be in VR. Yeah. And not have to worry about the cables and stuff like that. Um, hopefully, yeah. The TP cast sounds pretty cool. It's not a it's not a big priority for me, um, just because right. of the tiny play area that I have in my office. But um, the deluxe audio strap, like anything other than that, is barbaric. HTC shouldn't have <laughs> shipped without it. They really shouldn't. It's great. But yeah, it's it's like putting on a crown as opposed to, you know, tightening some elastic bands around your head. Yeah. So yeah, you will be coronated in VR when you put that on. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm the TP cast is really kind of my Christmas present to myself nice. if it is available in time. Yeah, hopefully. So, yeah, here's hoping. Well, we appreciate your sacrifice waiting until after the podcast to try out your new deluxe audio strap rather than recording with it on right now yes yeah i don't think i've recorded any of the podcast in vr 
definitely poked my head into Daydream a couple of times. Not today, because my headset's in the other room, but... Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's pretty much all I have. Well, that's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm VRHermit underscore Joe. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.